Hi there, and welcome to episode 70 of the uh, Ski Podcast, and thanks for joining us, listener. Firstly, as always, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast. I, I literally couldn't produce these shows without their support. And uh, listener, if you're joining us for the first time, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're a regular listener, just share the podcast and let your friends know about it. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the booming market for ski holidays for next winter. And there's a, a, a racing focus as well. We've got an interview with Martin Bell, uh, Britain's most successful male downhill racer. We've got news of the Afghan Ski Challenge. And we're going to be finding out a lot about the Inferno, which is the downhill race in Murren, Switzerland, that uh, us mere mortals can enter. Uh, we've got updates on travel and snow reports from around the world. But to, first, I'm going to introduce my uh, guest today. We have uh, Vanessa Fisher, who represents Lehman Weir in the UK. Hi, Vanessa. Good morning. And we also joined by uh, Nick Morgan, who's the managing director and founder of Ski Chalet Holidays. Hi, Nick. Good, good morning, Ian. How are you doing? Very well. Traditionally, we like to start by uh, finding out uh, when you last skied or snowboarded last. So, Vanessa, would you like to answer that question? Oh, so I had a short break in February 2020, so over a year ago, and I did two days in Arc 1950 and two days in La Clusa, and that was it. Yeah, last year. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. What about yourself, Nick? Well, I was very lucky. Um early March I went to uh, Switzerland for about 10 days sort of touring and off-piste skiing had a had an absolute ball then ended up going to uh, Courchevel for about three days where I skied with some guests of ours who first came on holiday in 1983 and they've been on holiday with us every single year since then unbelievable so that was that was fantastic then of course flew back to the UK into a slightly different world yeah, exactly. I think actually I was in because um, I, I seem to recall that you were in Arosa just like a week or so before me. So you exactly. were in Switzerland. I managed yeah. to ski then. Yeah. And then it all changed when I was going from Arosa to Andermatt. OK, well, none of us have, uh, have done too much of this season. Let's look at the uh, current situation for how things uh, stand. There is a global travel task force, which sounds very grand, but um it's uh, is being headed by Grant Shapps and Matt Hancock. So uh, who knows what's going to happen there? They're due to report on April the 12th, which is just under a month now. And they're going to tell us, you know, what may or may not happen from May the 17th. But since the last podcast, there's been quite a few a bit of news about vaccinations. Uh, Cyprus, Greece and Turkey have all said that they'll accept uh, British tourists uh, with vaccinations. So we really will depend on what happens on the way back. Uh, the EU have announced their digital green pass. Um, and this is kind of akin to the uh, common pass we discussed back in episode 61 in the autumn. But, you know, prospects for travel, you know, are looking much better specifically for us for ski for next winter. But it's easy to forget that skiing is still going on around the world. And we have three snow reports uh, this for this episode. Uh, they are from Andy Butterworth, who you remember from episode 66. He tells us about the situation in St. Anton. We've got uh, Ben from Maybe Ski, who's out in Whistler in Canada. Our first report from there this winter. And Ed Mannix from Matterhorn Chalets in Zermatt has a report as well. Since I last spoke with Ian um, on, the, on the podcast regarding what's happening in, in St. Anton, things have sort of changed and changed again. The lift system closed. Politics got in the way. Uh, the 
the, the Austrian Bergbahn, the Alberger Bergbahn, decided to close the lift systems for safety reasons uh, due to the mass testing that was being taken place. Um, as a result of the mass testing, uh, there were no serious cases. Um, in fact, there was almost been no cases at all in St. Anton uh, in the last eight weeks. Uh, the lift system opened again um, on reduced capacity. So there's only about four or five lifts open on the, mount- on the mountain, depending whether it's a weekday or a weekend. Uh, but that's more than enough to give everyone the chance to ski and enjoy the amazing conditions we currently have. Um, January saw uh, some epic snow, some of the deepest stuff uh, many people here have ever skied in. February saw glorious weather, uh, lots of sunshine, beautiful skies, clear blue skies, lovely sun, great peace. It was ideal skiing conditions. Um, certainly the the season that we are forgetting is a season that we won't ever forget, that's for sure. Um, currently, um, in the middle of March, we have incredible snow. Uh, the last four days have been filled 24 hours a day of, of solid snowfall, lovely, soft, fluffy flakes covering the mountain. Everything's white again. Um, there's over, well over three metres at the top of the mountains here, the top of the uh, the Gamp and Gautig, and certainly at the top of the Veluga mountain um, of untouched powder snow uh, where the lift systems aren't open going up that high. Um, but yeah, three, probably probably four, maybe even up to five metres right at the very, the, the very, very top. Um, the conditions are glorious. Um, you can ski fresh lines top to bottom because there's nobody on the slopes. It's soft, lovely, fresh, fluffy snow, the kind of snow where you can ski for three or four hours of solid powder and your legs don't actually hurt because it's that that easy riding through. Um, the forecast ahead is, is some light snow showers over the next couple of days. Um, and coming into sun towards the middle of middle of next week, so it's going to be a pretty good end to the season, I think, in Saint Anton. Um, in terms of of skiing, anyway, uh, for those that have been lucky enough to be able to enjoy it, um, the lift systems are due to close on we think on the fifth of fifth of April, maybe the eleventh of April, if they extend it by another week. Um, and that's the situation here currently. Um, it's been a season that we certainly won't forget. Um, for many reasons, um, least of all the incredible snow that we've had. Hi, and Ben Cook here from Maybe Ski, just bringing you a quick snow report from Whistler in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, like Europe, we've had an, an amazing snow year this year, actually, uh, with over 10 metres of snow so far, um, and a lot more in the forecast, too. Um, we've got a base running at about 275 to 300 centimetres, so very deep snow base up here. Um, we've had a great snowpack uh, in the resort all year. Um, we've been very lucky uh, that the lifts have been running uh, on both mountains, Whistler and Blackcomb, all year. Um, it's really been been very lucky for us locals um, up here. Um, they've done a great job at Whistler Blackcomb uh, with implementing sort of COVID policies this year, um, with a real emphasis on planning ahead. Uh, now the way they've done this is by implementing a reservation system. Um, so even ski season pass holders, uh, day ticket holders, everyone has to have an advanced reservation uh, to ski and they have a cap uh, on the number of people who can ski in one day. They didn't release the number um, of that cap but uh, but certainly it hasn't seemed too busy on mountain all year at all. Um, the one downside to that is it has resulted in some longer lift lines at the base 
because they're only allowing people from uh, their own bubbles or groups to go up together. You can't share a lift or gondola with a stranger. Um, so that's resulted in longer lift lines at the base, but actually once you get up top and people spread out, it's been quiet. Uh, I haven't waited in a lift line for longer than five minutes this year, which is almost unprecedented for Whistler in the busy season. Um, Weather-wise, it's been great. It's been cold, uh, snowy. We've had a, a slightly warmer and sunnier week last week, but we've got a big storm rolling in now, expecting another 60 to 70 centimeters um, of fresh snow in the next week and cold temperatures. Um, we've definitely seen a bit of a boom in ski touring and backcountry skiing out here. Um, we've got great access to the local uh, backcountry up here. Um, so there's been a, a huge increase in um, activity on, on that end, um, as well with snowmobile access skiing um, as well, um, which is paired quite dangerously with um, some, some fairly hairy avalanche conditions this year. We've had a, a bit of an odd snowpack with a, a very deep persistent weak layer, um, which has been there all year. So we've, we've uh, certainly had to play a bit more carefully than usual. Um, but apart from that, it's been a, been a great season so far. We're expecting to have a, an excellent march and uh, the resort is staying open uh, until April at least. Uh, we really have our fingers crossed for an extended opening uh, into May as per usual years. But uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Thanks, Ian. This is Ed Mannix from Matthorn Chalets and Zermatt with an up-to-date snow report on the local ski area, which has continued to operate normally since the start of this winter. Earlier in the week, we had some impressive snowfalls down to well below village level, and this has helped to freshen up what was a completely respectable but slightly tired piece system. Uh, ski conditions, both on and off prepared runs, are now as good as you can get. And today the weather was sunny with a clear blue sky, but very cold, with temperatures dropping to as low as minus 20 degrees at the upper climb Matterhorn lift station. All the three interlinked Zermatt ski areas are completely operational, and the lift systems at Rothorn, Gorngrat and Klein Matterhorn are fully functional. The recent snow, low temperatures and the lack of people during what would otherwise be a busy period, uh, the pistes are in excellent condition, even later in the day and even down to the village from both Furry and Suniga. On the other hand, the ski link to the neighbouring resort of Chavinia remains sadly shut as Italy endures a further wave of corona infections. Off-piste conditions are also good, although the high winds have done much to spoil the runs down from Schwarze and in the garden area between Trocknerstegg and Ferg. More sheltered areas below Rothorn and between Hotelli and Gant are, however, still very skiable. The Zermatt forecast for the next week is generally good, with low temperatures and sunshine, but the weather is expected to change towards the end of the month with some light snowfalls. Great. So, you know, it's reassuring in some respects to know that there is still some skiing going on uh, around the world. And yet again, very jealous of uh, those who are out there. And, you know, we've discussed about the prospects for travel, but, you know, British skiers are clearly uh, are very confident already. We had Joe Ponte from Ingham's uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he told me that their sales were 100% up year on year. Now, Nick, this week, I've seen some quotes from you uh, saying that sales are stratospheric. So I'm guessing you've you've seen a similar trend at Le Ski, is that right? We certainly have, yeah. Normally this time of year, of course, in March, we would be in the middle of operations. We'd be having our um, 80 staff, 33 chalets, all that sort of thing going on. Um, and also we'd be selling uh, holidays for next winter. And, and normally by now we'd be about 15% capacity. Um, and now we're almost 60% full for next winter which is just 
incredible but true um so you know four times busier than last year uh which is um it's just remarkable we keep sort of checking that the computer's providing the right stats but it is uh, and the thing about chalet holidays is you know once all our 33 chalets are full they're full we have two planes we're not going to get any more planes so it really is uh, it's looking like the, the the earliest sellout winter ever well i mean that is tremendous news because you know we've had a really tough year for the for the ski industry in general and then positive news like that is uh is great obviously some of those people must be people who've carried over holidays from maybe last season and this season but a lot of those people are also new bookings as well right uh, yeah of course there are some deferrals and you know wonderful thank you very much to all those people who, who did defer um, we've got some amazingly loyal guests who who knew um, that that was the best way to help us out. Uh, but also there's lots of new clients coming from, um, well, areas, maybe they used to go and ski with another company who maybe don't exist anymore or, they, or they're not doing chalet holidays anymore. And, you know, the chalet concept is, is still a really, really attractive one for, for people who want to go on holiday with a, a fully bonded operator who who offered the whole package with flights and transfers yeah it's a, a sad but um, true point you make there about other companies uh, you know going out of business what about uh, obviously bookings are um, up significantly i wondered if you had any any anecdotal or any evidence that people are booking more than one holiday for next winter because this is something that i've i've heard a, a couple of times mentioned oh absolutely um i mean i, I was on the phone to a to a bloke the other the other week and he had originally booked to go in March 2020. He'd then deferred uh, to January of this year, 2021. And uh, I just happened to be on the phone when he he rang and he said, look, you know, I'm going to defer again to next winter. Um, but we want to book another holiday for later on in the winter. And I just said to him, you know, this is it's just amazing how I mean I said can you just explain you know, what, what makes you want to do this, how, how you feel such loyalty? And he said, well, the thing is, um, I've been coming on holiday with your company for about seven years now. And uh, when we came about, about five years ago, I brought my son and his girlfriend and they got engaged at the top of the Signal chairlift in, in Courchevel. And I'm now looking after the children from that marriage. Right. And, you know, I just don't feel I can go anywhere else. And that's the sort of loyalty that, that we seem to have. And it's it's remarkable. Well, that I, I love that story. That's a, that's a really brilliant story. I mean, that loyalty, and you talk about all your clients uh, having carried over holidays, etc. I mean, this winter has has evidently been a disaster for most people working within the industry and resorts, etc. How have you physically got the ski shallow holidays through the winter without having been able to sell any holidays? Well, um, I, I run the ski with my sister Liz um, and uh, I think resilient is the word that you would use about her. And basically she uh, put together a plan and, and that plan was to communicate with people. It was to actually phone people up and say, look, I'm really sorry, but you can't go on holiday. Um, and I think that approach is 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 much more credible and genuine um with guests and therefore they they feel like they they want to help you out and and so they did 
Um, and, you know, credit to Liz for organising that and credit to all the staff for for getting on the phone and calling people because it's not an easy call, you know, to say, you know, remember that dream that you booked a while ago, you, you can't have it. Um, so I think open uh, an open approach, an honest approach and an organised sister uh, is is what's is what's brought us through <laughs> right okay well uh, well done i take it you, you the staff that you've had have they been furloughed or have you taken advantage of any of the business loans available or anything like that um yeah we yes the um uk staff uh, well we're sort of on flexible furlough because the thing is now we're we're actually really busy taking bookings for next winter so um you, you can't just and also in fact when when the first um, cancellation of the season happened about a year ago, we didn't put anybody on furlough. And uh, and again, I think that was, I mean, it, it didn't seem really sensible to be paying everybody, um, you know, normal wages for essentially phoning people up to cancel their holiday and, and, and offer refunds or deferrals. But I think that level of service it has, has sort of brought us through. And, you know, you hear stories of, of um, some rather large companies who just put the answer phone on and, you know, I, I'm not, not convinced that's the right way through. Um, have we taken advantage of any loans? Uh, yes. Uh, I don't think the, the government have really fully understood the impact on, on travel. Um, <laughs> I don't I think, think I know. Anyway. I think that's a massive <laughs> understatement for sure. This is obviously probably the most significant challenge that you've had. I mean, you've referred a couple of times there to how long you've been uh, in in business. Can, can you tell us how and when the company started? Oh blimey! Um, uh, right, so that was back in 1982. Um, I um, yeah, I'd flunked my business studies degree and uh, I leave the country and get a job in the south of France. So um, I was 21 and I started chatting to the bloke in the next tent and he said to me, what do you do in the winter? And I said, well, I don't know, I'm 21, you know, what? I, I could do anything, what do you do? And he said, I go skiing. And I, I, I promise you my response was, what's that? <laughs> I'd, I'd never skied, I'd never really heard of skiing. I didn't have any friends who skied um, and, you know, my parents weren't particularly sporty. And that wasn't the sort of holiday we went on. We went in a caravan to the Bois de Boulogne um, and, and bought baguettes and learned to speak French when I was five. So he said, he described skiing and I said, well, that sounds good. <laughs> so I, uh, he, he was actually working in Kitzbühel at the time. So I, I took a train up to Kitzbühel, found an apartment to rent. And, uh, but I said to the lady whose apartment it was, I'm afraid I don't have any money. You know, we didn't have any sort of family funds or anything. And, um, she said, well, you can pay me at the end of the season. It's fine. I mean, <laughs> that just does not happen nowadays. And so that was just incredible luck. So I spent the first season in Kitzbühel, learning to ski, uh, having a great time, and obviously just finding out what an amazing uh, sport it is. And then the following summer, I was again working as a courier on, on a campsite in the south of France, and the bloke in the tent two doors down or something, said, why do you go to Kitzbühel? It's only 800 metres high. Why don't you go to the Three Valleys? It's amazing. Um, and I, I looked at a map and I went, oh, that's a good idea. And I hired a car and I went and I drove up to Maribel 
because that's where I was told was would be the, the right place to start because you know, it's in the middle of the three valleys. And I couldn't find anywhere to rent. Um, and this lady said, why don't you go around to Courchevel? And I went, oh, okay, fine. And I drove around to Courchevel, started knocking on a few doors and I, I met somebody who had an apartment. And, and that was how, that's why we ended up in, in Courchevel 1650. Um, and everybody that second winter um, who'd been on holiday with us in Kitspool came to Courchevel. And then the following year, everybody who'd been the year before came again and, and brought more friends. And, and it just, um, well, to use a pun, but it, it, it snowballed. And, um, and, and I think also because it, that was the way that I was earning my living, you know, you take it quite seriously. I didn't have a, I didn't have a grant. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't have any access to any other funds. It was just if you didn't make the money, you didn't, you didn't live properly. So um, we took it quite seriously. And then after about five years, my organized sister got, <laughs> got involved. Um, and so I could uh, sort of stay in resort and, and do uh, you know, chatting and, and ski guiding when it was allowed. Uh, and, and Liz and my mum uh, organized things back in the UK. Um, and yeah, gosh, that's a memory from a long time ago. That, well, I get it, it is a long period of time that you've been in uh, in business there. And I think, uh, you know, I've known you through the industry for a long time as well. I know you're a Bob Dylan fan. I think uh, you're, a, you're a fan of that line. Uh, I don't know which song it's from, I have to be honest. But it's, if you ain't got nothing, you've got nothing to lose, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's from Like a Rolling Stone. And, and I, I really do think when I was 21 and sort of making that, well, it, it didn't take me more than a few seconds to make a decision to hop on a train to Kitsball. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I think if, if maybe if I'd started later and I had something to lose, I wouldn't have taken a risk. But I, I, I certainly didn't feel like I was taking a risk. And then gradually you realise that, oh, this thing that I really enjoy doing could actually become a career. Um, and of course, well, it ended up, yeah, <laughs> being my life, being my life, really. Great. Well, I mean, that's an excellent story. I, I love uh, hearing stories of how people set up and started off in the uh, in the ski industry. And it's looking very good for next winter. I do have to ask you, while we've got the opportunity now, you know, we've referred uh, to what's traditionally known as the elephant in the room, uh, Brexit, a number of times, kind of been forgotten a bit. But that is going to kind of complicate things uh, perhaps a little bit for next season. How? What are your thoughts and how you planning to staff the, the chalets for next winter um it's very complicated uh I, I don't mean to be condescending it just is very complicated it's uh and i think it's one of the reasons that some of the the larger operators have sort of disappeared from from the chalet um, picture because when we first started the the chalet um the Shelley world was was run by small specialist companies and i think it's going to return to being run by small specialist companies uh, prices have had to rise uh, to 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 help us to to pay for the extra costs um uh, because of the b word um uh, so to be honest it's it's still a little unclear how everything actually fits in um, but uh, there is there's a, there's a good framework. 
Okay, well, that's promising uh, to hear. And certainly, I know that we're all looking forward to uh, to next season. And that's really good news that uh, bookings are looking so strong. Let, let's uh, come back to um, this season. Uh, regular listeners will have heard our roving reporter, Charlie Reese. He was out in Murren and reported from there in episode 69. But when he was there, he also found out about the Inferno, uh, the famous downhill race that the resort uh, hosts every winter. And I'm just going to uh, play a bit of audio from his interview there. From there. Uh, but now it'd be great to uh, move on to talking about the Inferno race. Um, Kurt, you were instrumental in uh, getting the race into the current format that it's currently in. Um, how did you get involved with the Inferno and uh, what makes it such a special race from your point of view? Well, in 1971 I had to give up ski racing because of some bad injuries and I was elected a director of Muren Tourism and at the same time a technical chief of the ski club. So I had to organize the Inferno race coming in 1972 for the first time. And I felt that that race could be an important international event again if we would release the race from the competition rules of the Swiss Ski Federation and opened it to everybody without asking for an international license. Before this, you could not go to a foreign country without a license and without going to the National Ski Federation where the race was held. So, on top of that, the course from the Schildhorn over 15 kilometers down to the Valley of Lauterbrunnen with that breathtaking panorama of the Bernese Alps so close is surely one of the most impressive courses in the world. And with that, we managed in a short time to build up the numbers of racers from around 40 to over a thousand. I believe that Inferno is the real mother of downhill racing. Perfect. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting race and a lovely course, which I've got to experience certain sections of today. Uh, what, so why is it actually called the Inferno race and how has the race changed since the beginning in 1928? Well, when the members of the Kandahar Ski Club with Sir Arnold Lann organized the first races in 1928, 29 and 30, it was a fight of a whole hour over unprepared slopes and even through forests down to the finish in Lauterbrunnen. They felt that it was an infernal ride. That's where the name Inferno comes from. Today, the course is perfectly prepared and gives hundreds of amateur races the feeling of skiing in a World Cup race with the record time standing around 10 minutes. Perfect, that's a very impressive time. Perfect. And uh, just over to you, Alan. So do you have any other tips that would-be racers might uh, find helpful when they come to race in the Inferno? Well, having had the experience of crashing and burning on my first uh, five attempts at the Inferno. The number one tip I have is to try and ski within your limits. It's really hard when you go out the start line and the, the speed that you can get up to going down the short turn is quite addictive. But um, if you can ski within your limits, you're going to have an all right time. If you ski without your limits and crash and burn, you're going to have 
a pretty poor time and almost every racer I've met on the finish line will always say I could have done there or there, I could have been faster. But the ones that can ski within their limits and get down without the crashing, they're the ones that are going to be not overjoyed with the time, but they're certainly be happy. But you're always going to, and you always find someone to race against as well. Perfect, that sounds uh, very interesting. So how about uh, the most challenging part of the course for you? Whereabouts were you having your crashes and how would you avoid them next time? The, f the start's obviously a challenge because you've got to go out, you've got to go fast, but you've got to be in control. The, the traverses, so there's a traverse from the Shilton Traverse, there's an Engital Traverse, and they are long and it's trying to stay in the tuck, stay as low as you can to go as fast as you can, but without killing yourself for the rest of the race. But the, the Hohenlücke, so down towards the Almentubel, there's a big corner there. If you can get that corner right, get up through the wood, um, and you're fast enough and fit enough to get up there fast, that's where the race is going to be won and lost, and that separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. And how about you, Kurt, with your four wins? Do you have any uh, tips for would-be racers? Yeah, as Alan said already, uh, should you race for the first time, uh, get physically fit and maybe find somebody who can show you the course or the special spots of the course. And especially do not forget to use your brain racing. You will not win the race in the steepest or fastest places, but you can lose them there. Perfect. And for you, Alan, have there been any real classic races? I heard you, uh, you said you've been a part of 30 races, something like that. Is any one of them really standing out to you as your favourite race? They, they, they all stand out in certain ways because the inferno is never the same two years in a row. And, and sometimes the start line isn't on the Shilton, it's lower down because of avalanches or lack of snow. Sometimes the finish line is higher than Lauterbrunn, it's maybe at Winteregg, it can be even in Moorn we've had finishes, but the definitely the most memorable uh, race for me was the last one, 2020. And then I was fortunate enough to have an early starting time my youngest daughter was forerunning the course and my eldest daughter Lillian, she was, she had a number at the end because she'd forerun the year before and it was her first time so you go to the back of the queue and unfortunately my wife Ernie was on the finish line working, collecting the transceivers that do the time so she had to worry all day about both her daughters managing to get down the course safe and well but they both got down safe and well. I was quite an emotional time, I must say, to pass the finish line and have both daughters racing, so that's definitely the most memorable and satisfying race I've been involved in. Yeah, I'm sure it is. That sounds a pretty special occasion for you. Perfect. It sounds like a very special race. And sadly, this year it was cancelled due to the COVID pandemic. But how can people get involved next year? As I'm sure many people will be wanting to get back on the hill in Mirren and give the Inferno a go. Yes, the procedure to enter for the race is still the same. Uh, get in touch with 3xw.inferno-murren with UE and you find all the necessary information. Do that uh, before uh, middle of summer 
and you have a chance to get in. Uh, not everybody can get a place, depends how many of the old racers stop racing. We cannot have more than 1,800 racers coming down that day. Okay, that's, uh, that wraps it up for today. But thank you very much for your time. It's very much appreciated. It was great to learn more about the Inferno. And I'm sure many people are going to be wanting to join next year. Yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs> Well, that was interesting uh, what Charlie had to say there. Um, interestingly, on the panel today, we have experience of 27 uh, infernos between us. Uh, sadly, only one of them is from me. So uh, it's no accident I asked Vanessa and Nick to join me today. Um, Vanessa, what, what would you say is so special about the Inferno? I think you've done it 11 times. Is that right? Yeah, so I had to, um, I did three or four years initially um and then had a break and actually in that break was maybe it was um the reason why i didn't go back for a few years had a few kids got three children and then in i think it was around 2012 i went back and then got sort of hooked into it again and um i think it's the combination of the adrenaline of taking part in a big event and a you know it's a downhill ski as you know with uphill sections um, plus the chance to catch up with, you know, lots of friends. See, Nick and I both work in the ski industry, and it does tend to attract lots of people that work in the industry. So it's a combination of that sort of adrenaline, I think, and you'll know that, Ian, from doing all your sporting events. Um, yeah, and then the chance to have a, a good fun weekend with mates that involves a bit of skiing at the same time. I think you're understating it there because we've had you on the show uh, before where, you know, you are pretty competitive. I think uh, I'll put a link into the show notes, but it's not the only kind of amateur downhill racer around, is it? And um, I think maybe three seasons ago you competed in the in the kind of Grand Slam of uh, of these races. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that was incredible. So I didn't even know it existed, but there's a, a three races that form a series called the Super Three, Super Dry. And one is in Balaup, one is in Saspe, and then the Inferno is in Murren. So three Swiss races. And if you take part in all three, you actually end up with a preferential start number in the Inferno. And um, Lots of people repeat the Inferno to try and get higher up the start position. So there's sort of that that takes a role in why people come back and do it again as well, because they want to get higher up the ranking. Because just, yeah. to, just to clarify, with, the, with yeah. the number of people who take part, if you end up getting quite a low start number, it is significantly more difficult, isn't it? Because the, the course yeah. typically does get quite rutted. So there's lots of factors in even your initial first year entry so if you are a member of one of the more prestigious uh, ski clubs, whether that's a British one or a Swiss one, that affects your ranking. But generally, first timers will be in the last few hundred races. And obviously the course then is much more rutted. Um, so the aim for a lot of these amateurs that go is to work their way slowly up the ranking. And yeah, I hadn't appreciated that by taking part in the Super 3, you really jump up. So I think my last one, which was when it was part of the Super 3, I started around another 700 out of 1,800. Right. Okay. And what's the highest start number you've had? That, that was it. 
Oh, yeah. right. Okay. So, so even yeah. the, the best you've had is starting around 700. Now yeah. I have to uh, fess up here. Uh, in the only occasion that I took part in the Inferno, I was a journalist uh, taking part as a journalist. And I got to go, I think oh, I was in the top 50 for sure. I can't exactly remember. What I do remember is we went up to the restaurant uh, at uh, Piz Gloria that Charlie described in episode 69, where they have the fantastic Bond Museum up there. And we got to uh, have, have some croissants and a, a cup of tea using the uh, the, the Bond-inscribed crockery that they have up there and then went down to the start fairly early. And it was yeah. very cold uh, at that yeah. particular uh, time, but I got an, an early start and therefore a kind of what you might call a relatively clear run uh, down. Um, Nick, can I bring you in at this point? You have even more experience with a, a 15 uh, Infernos under your belt, I think. What, what is it that makes the Inferno stand out to you? Initially, I have to be honest, I was invited by a friend. I didn't really know what I was going to get involved in. Uh, I didn't, at that time, uh, people didn't ski with helmets, really. Most people didn't. I didn't realise you needed a helmet for, for actually doing the race. And I turned up without a helmet, um, with the completely wrong skis. And I met um, I met a German guy in the street who had obviously had a really good start time. And he was walking back to his apartment with a beer in his hand about sort of 10 past nine or something. And I said, oh, can I, can I borrow your helmet, please? And he went, yeah, sure, no problem. And he sort of gave me his helmet. And so uh, I was unprepared, I think you would, you would call it. Um, but the thing that attracted me was actually going to a different ski resort. It sounds really spoiled, but I'd been skiing a lot, you know, in, in the, the French resorts and just the idea of going to Muren. And I, and I think it's just the most incredible setting on that shelf opposite Vengen yeah, to wake up and look out. Oh, it's just stunning. And yeah. to look out at the the Eiger, the Jungfrau and the Monk in the morning um, and see all these people from all over the world. I think that was what was really exciting for me, actually. Uh, okay, loads of Swiss, but also people come from all over the world. And there was one year an American guy won it. And I think he'd arrived in Bern Airport the night before, you know, and he sort of said, where's the course? <laughs> he didn't really know what he was doing. but And he and he just he just um, won it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I never took part seriously, though, Ian. I, so <laughs> I was... More, more, <laughs> more of a more of a luncher and that social side of things is important but equally everybody is talking about the the race and right. the, you know what start number they've got etc yeah. uh, and you know you know you referred to the skis there v vanessa obviously you mentioned this course is uh, yeah. i guess unique in that it goes up and down at the uh, same time mm -hmm. so there's a balance you've got to uh, strike in terms of the right skis to take uh, oh yeah and people that go there regularly again they take it really seriously so when when I was taking part as part of the super three we had an Australian guy on our team you know he'd come from Australia to Switzerland and to spend what would that have been three months I think he did going between various different resorts taking in you know that Murren Belle Alp and Sasfe, and he was obsessed with wax. What wax was he going to put on the bottom of his teeth? Seriously. <laughs> and actually, again, through going to the various places where you can wax your skis and resorts, you get to meet all these characters. And um, yeah, the chat about what length your skis are. I actually ended up buying a pair because, um, because my feet are quite small. I could never find a pair of skis that adjusted down to my boot size. 
and it would get me really stressed out because I was usually renting them from a ski shop just for that two or three days. And yeah, for the last, you know, taking part in the super tour, I thought I can't have that hassle and stress each time I get to a resort. Will there be a pair of skis at work? So I bought a, I think they were 187 centimetre long ski, which for me is really long. But some of these guys, you go in the lift and yeah, they're on two metre 10, two metre 20. And it's- which too, you know, those type of skis are great for the downhill sections and the gliding sections. But the nature of this race is that there there are some sections where you have to go uphill. And actually we had um, we had Ed from uh, Matterhorn Chalets uh, doing his snow report earlier. And he um, takes part most years, I think. And, uh, you know, doesn't go for that, you know, huge downhill ski, he goes for uh, something that's, uh, uh, you know, a bit lighter and a bit more uh, malleable. He takes part, though, in what I think might be called the Triple Crown, because as well as the actual Inferno, there's a giant slalom and a cross-country race around the resort as well, isn't there? Incredible yeah. to watch because they make circuits around the village. So again, as a spectator, you get to see these guys, you know, making these laps. And they're, some of them are absolutely, like Ed, are absolutely brilliant. Yeah, well, uh, one Ed did suggest to me that uh, it's good to do some practice because on the occasion that I went along, I did do the three different races. I actually got into Murren on, I'm, I can't remember the exact days, but I got into Murren in the afternoon, checked into my hotel, went to the hire shop picked up a pair of cross-country skis and within an hour within an hour I was kind of racing around this uh, course having not done cross-country for 20 years quite, uh, quite common actually as well <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> and there's this bit I didn't even know I hadn't looked at the course I didn't know what was going on I knew there was a bit of you know you go round in a circle uh, uh, up and down but there's uh there's a uh, 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 some kind of bumps in it as well I wouldn't kind of describe it as a uh, jump uh, but rollers in it. And that's quite a challenge when you haven't been on there for a while. And that's where all the crowds were, people waiting to watch the incompetent people on their cross-country mm. skis having a go on that. But, you know, if you are kind of competitive and uh, there's 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 lots to do, and if you're not competitive and you just want to take part, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's tremendous, tremendous fun. So it, the Inferno didn't take part, it didn't take place this year, but it will take place uh, next year. And, uh, you know, they are typically oversubscribed. So I'm going to put a link into the show notes and uh, and listener, if that's uh, piqued your uh, interest, you can go along and, and take part or uh, or watch. Now, from the amateurs to the professionals, uh, back when Nick was setting up the ski, Martin Bell was uh, just starting out on what turned out to be a very successful career racing real downhill for uh, for Team GB. Uh, and listener, you may have already listened to uh, uh, my interview in this special episode, which we published uh, last week. But uh, in this particular clip, Martin talks about sibling rivalry because his brother is uh, is Graham Bell and appearing on the Wogan show and the uh, the Eddie the Eagle effect at Calgary 88. Do you think that sibling rivalry between you and Graham drove you both forward? Uh, it did at certain times. You know, when we were much younger, uh, he was, you know, quite a bit behind me and always chasing me. So it was driving him. I was chasing, you know, the older boys, uh, the Hill End crew, you know, people like Midge White and Davey Mercer and Scott Dobson. So I was, you know, I was chasing the one and my little brother was chasing me. Uh, and then once we got onto World Cup 
Graham had some injuries, quite bad injuries early on. So it took him a while to establish himself. Uh, and so really in, in the later part of our careers, I think we became very competitive and, you know, one race, one of us would be ahead and then the next race, the other one would be ahead. And, you know, we didn't like being beaten by our brother, but it, <laughs> we didn't like being beaten by anyone. And it was probably better to be beaten by your brother than some you know, Austrian that you didn't know. So, uh, you know, we worked together. We, uh, we definitely worked as a team within a team and, uh, we pulled our skis, for example. We had a big group of skis that we tested together. And whoever was currently ahead in the rankings list that week got the first choice of the skis. So it was all done very fairly. Right. Okay. That's good. Because I think um, the, the kind of resources resources you had were probably not quite as good as what the uh, the British team are currently able to benefit from. So I guess those skis probably would be crucial in terms of your chances in any particular race. Well, it's funny you say that. I actually think we were better supported in the 80s than the current British team is now. Um, after we sent our daughter over to those Europa Cups I was talking about, uh, we got sent a bill for the hotel and the coaching, and uh, <laughs> right. that was not the case. That was not the case in the eighties. We were supported to go to every race, hotel bills covered, coaches' fees covered. So you know, I think, I mean, back in the fifties and the sixties, it was definitely a rich man's game, and our ski racers were called names like, you know, peers. Uh, <laughs> and and now you know we've got a bloke called Dave, so that has changed. Uh, but I do think we've taken a bit of a backward step. Uh, there is not as good support financially for the racers now as we had in the eighties and nineties. I'm sad to say. Right. Okay. Well, that's really interesting and possibly a bit disappointing to hear that. I mean, I do recall uh, at the time when I was following it, Drambui were a big sponsor of the team and uh, they were very uh, visible on in the ski world. And it was uh, always great to go to the ski show and be able to get just a little nip of uh, uh, Drambui. Um, you went to four Winter Olympics, I think. That was a Sarajevo 84, Calgary 88, Alberville 92 and Lillehammer 94. I'm guessing Calgary was probably your favorite would that be the case you know I probably have the most um, vivid memories of Sarajevo because it was my first you know and and it's just so impressive to be in an Olympic village and uh, for a lot of the time when we were racing at Calgary we were not in the village because it was too far away so we were up at a place called Fortress Mountain which uh, no one has ever heard of. And actually it's closed down, but its biggest claim to fame was it was used in the movie Inception. If you oh, see yeah. the, the the winter sequences, that's Fortress yeah. Mountain. So right. we were up in this beautiful place and it was only 20 minutes drive from where the skiing events were. But uh, no, Sarajevo was definitely something special. Uh, the whole country seemed behind the Olympics. We had no inkling of what was going to happen to Yugoslavia just a few years later. It was really, uh, you know, a huge turnaround. Uh, you mentioned uh, at Calgary, you stayed, uh, you didn't stay in the Athletes Village. And I think it was traditional for the British team to stay in the uh, Athletes Village at that time. Was it difficult to get the uh, the team managers to allow you to go for that Fortress Mountain base? Um, actually, I don't remember it being a huge issue uh, we were lucky in that the downhill was early on in the schedule, which it always is. 
So after the downhill, we were able to move down to the village and, and take part in the more social activities. Uh, but no, up in Fortress Mountain, the difficult part was actually getting accommodation. And uh, we were kind of in a changing area that was next to the toilets that they'd put a few bunk beds in just to accommodate <laughs> us. And the only other team up there was the Austrian team. So we knew we were doing the right thing. Right. Yeah, that's a good that's a good clue, isn't it? I think the profile, you know, was was very high then. I would call it the, you know, the height of uh, of skiing, certainly probably in terms of the numbers of people going. I mean, I was working for Bladen Lines around that time. They were a massive uh, company, so many people going on chalet holidays and Ski Sunday definitely had a lot more viewers in those days. I think prior to the games, I read that you even appeared on the Wogan show uh, with David Vine. That must have been quite, I don't know, nerve-wracking perhaps? I don't know. Uh, you know, it was just all a blur, really. But uh, it's actually out there on YouTube if you if you care to look for it. And uh, it it went pretty well, uh, me and Graham on the sofa. Uh, and the the other star on the show was uh, Greta Skaki, the actress, who, you know, we just were kind of, we, we were almost too scared to talk to her. We were just so much <laughs> in awe of her. Um she just appeared in a movie called White Mischief, which was, you know, yeah. had a few raunchy scenes in it. So, yeah, it was a wonderful time. Uh, Ski Sunday was huge. Um, ski racing was was the only game in town, really, although freestyle was was beginning to make its mark. You know, it was a it was a demonstration event in Calgary with moguls and aerials. And uh, yeah, uh, it was it was a great time. And you say that, you know, downhill was the only game in town, but it must have been strange being in the British team with all the attention that ended up falling on um, Eddie the Eagle Edwards with his uh, attempts uh, at ski jump. Yeah, well, that, you know, that came out of the blue. I mean, we we had seen Eddie. We'd, we'd you know, watched Eddie taking part in the, the New Year's ski jump at Garmisch for the couple of years before that. I think the year before Calgary he had a really bad crash and broke his collarbone and was, yeah, no, we didn't really expect him to be selected for the Olympics, but there was a loophole, you know, because there had never been a British ski jumper, there were no qualification standards set for British ski jumping. So they just took anyone, whereas, uh, you know, everyone else had to kind of qualify. And then the next time around in 92, they made Eddie qualify. And of course he didn't make the qualification. So it was a one-off, you know, it was uh, a special, uh, a special situation. And uh, yeah, we were just amazed by what was going on. You know, Eddie dancing on the theater of a strip bar in Calgary and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> he went home and released a single and it went nearly to the top of the charts, didn't it? So yeah, uh, just the the media feeding frenzy. You know, if it suddenly latches onto someone, it changes their life. Yeah. And just on the Team GB front, uh, following on from uh, Martin, uh, worth noting that uh, I saw Zoe Atkin picked up bronze in the uh, freestyle halfpipe at the World Championships. And her sister is Izzy Atkin, who uh, won a medal at the last Olympics. Uh, Mia Brooks, who we've mentioned before, also won uh, in the Europa Cup. Uh, snowboard slope style so they're both two promising uh, results there looking forward uh, now let's jump way across the world now to the uh, Himalayas uh, and recently I was lucky enough to interview uh, James Wilcox from the tour operator Untamed Borders and 
he takes people skiing to Afghanistan and I talked to him about all sorts of things. I'm going to release a, a special episode about that. But I talked to him about the Afghan ski challenge. I noticed that one of the uh, trips that you organize is specifically to join in on an event called the Afghan Ski Challenge. I wondered if you could tell me about that, James. Well, the Afghan Ski Challenge, I mean, to, I'll, I'm going to take it a little bit of a step back before yeah. the Afghan Ski Challenge, um, because the Afghan Ski Challenge is, is, is part of how the sort of ski development of ski tourism and skiing in Afghanistan even um, sort of began. So... Back in uh, 2009, I met an expat um, who was working in Kabul, uh, rather like your friend. And he, basically, not every weekend, but most weekends in the winter, he, uh, some British and some French uh, expats who used to, who skied, would travel up to a place called the Salang Pass, which is a couple of hours drive north of Kabul. And they'd drive up to the top of the pass and then kind of ski tour a little bit up further up and then ski down. And this used to be, you know, a great uh, sort of weekend activity, get away from Kabul, especially in the winter. And I met him and he said, if I was serious about being an Afghan tour operator, I should offer a ski trip. So he said he would take a week off work if I brought some tourists over and he'd guide them. He used to be a ski guide in, in Europe. So I said, look, this sounds like a great idea. So in 2011, we had again, three ski tourists uh, came over and and he guided them. Now, at the same time, there was an organization, uh, well, in in Bamiyan, the New Zealand army had been based in Bamiyan. Each province had a different different country basically looked after uh, different provinces. The UK um, was based in Helmand province, which is often why Helmand province is quite well known in the UK as, as, as a place in Afghanistan. That was where there was a lot of difficult fighting. Now, the New Zealanders, they were part of the coalition, but they didn't really want to be part of the coalition. So they got given Bamiyan, which is why I've explained that Bamiyan is quite a peaceful place, and that's why we can go and do the skiing. Now, when they left, they uh, left different types of money for different development programs, and one of which um, was a tourism development program. And it was implemented by an organization called the Aga Khan Foundation. And the spokesman for the Aga Khan Foundation was a friend of my friend who went, and they went skiing north of Kabul. So any tourism development organization, he was like, well, what happens in the winter? Nothing happens in Bamiyan in the winter. It's in the mountains. Mm-hmm. So in the summer, people go up there. There's these beautiful lakes at a place called Bandi Amir. Um, there's a lot of old um, Buddhist historical um, archaeological sites. It's, it's, it's fantastic. But in the winter, nothing happens. So he persuaded them to implement a winter tourism section to that project. So that happened at exactly the same time as we were bringing our first tourists over. And it also at the same time in 2010, a Swiss journalist called Christoph Zürcher um, was stuck in Bamiyan in the winter. He couldn't fly out. And he's Swiss, so he's stuck in the mountains. There's lots of snow. So, of course, what does he do? He looks for a pair of skis. But there were no skis to be found in Bamiyan. He couldn't find anything anywhere. So he promised himself that if he came back, he would bring everyone, he'd bring like 10 or, I think, 10 sets of skis. He'd have a, a, train some people to ski, and he'd organize a ski race. So in 2011, in the same year that we did our first ski trip, and when this uh, project was beginning. Christoph organized the first Afghan ski challenge. Well, this was all kind of going on separately. There wasn't a lot of interaction. But after 2011, we all kind of met and said, OK, we need to kind of try and um, collaborate on this. So we offer packages um, to the 
uh, Afghan Ski Challenge, uh, which, you know, is there to help train people to ski. The Aga Khan Foundation no longer really involved because that project is finished, but there's a, a big sort of um, idea of collaboration between different organizations. And so the ski race has happened every year. Um, this is its uh, <clears throat> also its 11th year. And, and it's not organized really by Christoph anymore. It's, you know, it's taken on by Ali Shah and Sajad, who are the two best skiers in Afghanistan. Um, if anyone wants to look further, there's a film called Where the Light Shines. I don't know if you're able to. Yeah, I can your... drop it into the show notes. Yeah, that would be amazing. Where the Light Shines is a film which documents Ali Shah and Sajad in there. Because when I first met them, they they had both been skiing for less than a month, I think. And it's their story of trying to become the first Afghan Winter Olympians uh, at Pyeongchang in 2018. I can't remember where yep. it was, in Korea in 2018. Um, I won't tell you whether they made it or not, but it's definitely, um, it's definitely well worth a look. And they organize the, um, the Afghan Ski Challenge every year now in, uh, in Bamiyan. So that's the story of the challenge and also the story of how kind of skiing... Right. And, and, and what is the challenge? What, what, it's a ski touring... Uh, it's right. a, is that right? it's just yeah it's a ski touring race so it's not a timed i mean it is a timed event but it's a mass it's a mass start yeah so it's basically the course is the course is not the same each year so i can't say exactly what the course is each time um there was one year where it, it was a mass downhill start and <laughs> then a transition to go up and then a sort of you know then a downhill slant and back but I mean, thankfully, no one was seriously injured in the mass downhill <laughs> start. But it was decided, um, it was decided not to repeat that because it was quite, um, it really was quite dangerous. Um, but it's basically, yeah, it, it's it's not a huge ski touring event. I mean, the distance of the ascent, I mean, the altitude gain of ascent has has varied throughout the years from about 400, 500 meters to maybe 800, 900 meters. So it's 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 a reasonable effort. Um, and it, you know, it's it's all about the uphill, um, and and, and it's, it's at altitude as well. So, and it's know, altitude, it's really, yeah. and it's never been won by a non-Afghan. Even in uh, the early years, when most of the Afghan guys, you know, they were novice skiers, they were finished. Even if they had, to, you know, even if they fell like twenty times coming down before the first international had got a couple of international people have come second, but no, no one from outside Afghanistan has ever won the Afghan ski challenge. Right. Okay. But typically, um, I think uh, I, I had a look on the, the website and it said that you might have about 50 people taking part, maybe half of them are from overseas, half of them domestic. Yeah, it's it, it, it varies. I would say those numbers have have shifted more. There's a lot more um, Afghan people taking part. Uh, Great. Part of that reason is more people know how to ski. So as part of Christoph's um, Part of the kind of the ski project it was supported by different people for three years it was spo sponsored by Volkel, the uh, swiss uh, ski manufacturer they helped yeah. support ali shan sajad to go to try and go to the winter olympics and each year there would be a ski school one two ski schools one for boys and one for girls and uh, the boys would each i talked about those valleys these kind of 10 valleys heading south out of Bamiyan. there would be one person from each of those villages uh, who would get trained in the ski school and then they would um, take part in in the Afghan ski ski challenge. Brilliant! And when this was happening, when skiers you know started skiing in these villages, all the kids wanted to ski as well. But there wasn't that much equipment, so someone from the you know one of the dads in the villages would make skis out of 
uh, would make wooden skis. So they would have kind of like tin cans for, you know, bashed out for edges and just made of wood and these kind of different types of bindings. Um, I mean, there's some great photos somewhere of the internet of these early kind of ski, ski, skis. Um, but sometime in 2016, 2017, um, the Slovenian army, which was based in the province next door, uh, they, were, they were moving out. You know, a lot of the international troops moved out of Afghanistan around that time. And they were bringing containers over to move their equipment out. And I, we're not, I can't even remember exactly how it happened, but there was a sort of a, donations of old ski and winter equipment were put in one of these containers to go out to Afghanistan and was distributed to, the, to Ali Shan Sajad and the guys in, uh, in Bamiyan. And then they distributed this to all of the villages where for you know five or six years people had trained and the kids had learned to ski on these wooden skis. So all of this sort of vintage Slovenian ski equipment is now up in the mountains and people ski all the time on it. And so there's a lot more competitors because a lot more people have equipment. And if they can get to the race, people will compete in the race. So now it's more like 100, 110 right. uh, skiers and the vast majority are, are Afghan guys from the, from the mountains. Well, that was really interesting. It's certainly, you know, I've been thinking about skiing in Pakistan. Maybe Afghanistan will be the one, uh, something, another one to add to that growing uh, bucket list. Uh, now, if you enjoy the ski podcast, uh, don't forget you can buy me a coffee at uh, buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. And I'd just like to thank all of these guys who've who bought me a cuppa since the last episode. That's Stuart Barber, who, who says he loves the podcast. Peter Taylor, really enjoying the podcast. Only recently discovered it. Andrew Brannan, thanks for the podcast. You brighten up my commute. Uh, also, David Wade, Matt, uh, Graham. Uh, and actually, Andrew also says he must be the UK's most prolific ski broadcaster. Well, I've been putting out an episode every week uh, this season, uh, and I've really enjoyed uh, doing all of that. It's taken up a huge amount of my time. And recently, I've actually been working out how much time it takes out. Uh, and I'm just going to scale that down once we come to the end of the season. But there'll still be one per fortnight uh, at a very uh, minimum. So I'm going to keep um, you know, putting out the episodes. But it's not all take, take, take. Don't forget, listener, that if you'd like a ski podcast sticker, we have a, a stock of stickers here. So uh, please contact us uh, through Facebook or drop us an email. Also, we've got some goodies from Switzerland Tourism to give away. All you have to do is to give us a review on uh, Facebook or Apple Podcasts before the end of this month and you'll go into the draw. Uh, it'll only take a minute and it actually does help new listeners uh, find us. Uh, we have a couple of re reviews, both via Snowheads. So I'm not sure they're formal reviews, but a user called Lane says uh, a couple of very interesting specials. Keep up the good work. And Mike Powell, who uh, regular listeners will recognize as Mike, who's told us about skiing in Wales, uh, says getting better each episode. So that's very kind of you, uh, Mike. Uh, we also had a question from uh, Stuart Barber. Now, he asked if uh, the cable car from Out Duez to Laders Alp is still happening. Now, this is a project that's been going on for years and it probably will be discussed. There's so many different communes and different uh, parties involved in this. Conceptually, it is still going to happen. But I think what I'm going to do is try and get someone uh, on the podcast from one of those resorts to talk about it in more detail so we can give it a proper answer. So otherwise... Uh, that is it for episode uh, 70. Uh, coming up, I mentioned the Afghan special. Uh, Charlie is going to be out in Engelberg trying snowshoeing. So we're going to be covering that in the next episode. 
Uh, you can follow me at Skipedia and the show at the Ski Podcast. And I'd like to uh, thank uh, Nick and Vanessa, uh, my guests today. Thank uh, and thanks to Switzerland Tourism uh, for their support. And finally, thank you, listener, for listening. So uh, until next time, uh, from Nick, Vanessa and myself, uh, goodbye. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the ski podcast at buymeacoffee.com. This blank season has been a tough winter for all snow lovers. I've spent a lot of time and put in a lot of effort to try and give you an episode every week through this winter to give you your taste of snow, even if we can't go out there ourselves. Now, I do it anyway because I love skiing. But if you do enjoy the ski podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee or in my case, a tea at buymeacoffee.com. Just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.